Don't despise seemingly small things. Be grateful for every little opportunity that you have to be an encouragement to someone at your local church, with a friend, with a coworker, with somebody that you're sitting next to on a plane or at Starbucks. Every little thing that you do with a good-hearted intention to bless somebody is a part of the kingdom, and we celebrate that. Have you ever gotten to a place in life where you have a moment to reflect on your journey and the decisions you made or didn't make to get you to where you are today? Oftentimes, when having conversations with others who have been walking in faith for more than a few years, they can point back to pivotal moments where they saw God divinely orchestrate the details as they took steps forward. Even getting to pause and look back and see the ways things piece together can be eye-opening and hopefully life-giving when you see that truly every step of your journey got you to where you are today. In today's conversation, I get to dive into the seemingly unlikely ways God would move and have favor over a ministry that started simply through a prayer and a desire to bring the love and life-saving message of Jesus to others through a life surrendered to what God could do. I have the honor and privilege of connecting with a gentleman I had the chance to work for years and years ago, but I'm so thrilled to share more about the ministry that he's leading as president and CEO. Kevin Palau is the president and CEO of Luis Palau Association. Under his leadership, LPA has united tens of thousands of churches in hundreds of cities to love and serve their communities and clearly share the good news of Jesus. During Kevin's time at LPA, he has helped develop a global network of hundreds of partner evangelists and launched a city gospel movement effort that helps unite churches to serve their city and proclaim the good news on an ongoing basis. He lives in Beaverton, Oregon with his wife, Michelle, and he enjoys serving on the boards of Alpha USA, Christians Against Poverty, and Transforming the Bay with Christ. Looking back over the years of incredible moments that God has showed His unrelenting favor and has pieced so many things together for the ministry of LPA, which was started by Kevin's father, Luis Halau, has been a sweet reminder of God's intricate hand at work through the many years of ministry within Luis Palau Association. As you listen today, I hope you're not only inspired and encouraged by the incredible work and ministry of LPA, and that you also get to spend some time today thinking about where you have seen God intricately work details together in your life to bring you to where you are today. So are you ready to dive in? Why don't you pull up that chair, grab that cup of coffee, and dive in with us to The Places Between. When you find yourself between here and there, the now and the then, it can feel difficult to embrace life and all that it has to offer, especially when you feel like you haven't arrived yet. Wherever you're at though, we wanna help in that beautiful struggle of transitioning well through aspects of faith and life with The Places Between, a podcast all about transitions. Hi, I'm your host, Wendy. I'm a storyteller and a creative with a passion for adventure, fitness, and faith. What began as a love for travel, experiences, and community turned into helping clients around the country tell their own stories and inviting others to join them. 
I've always been passionate about people fully living. That means navigating those places between, opening up a safe space to have conversations, and encouraging growth along the journey. So join me as we explore what it's like to transition well on the places between. Kevin, I am so honored and thrilled to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Wendy. It's great to reconnect after so many years. It has been a few years. I cannot wait to dive in, seeing the way that God has moved just in and through the ministry. And I'd love to just share a little bit more about the ministry that you're part of. I don't want to share too much too soon, but why don't we start with having you share a little bit about who is Kevin? Where do you find yourself and the ministry that God's called you into? Thanks, Wendy. Well, I have the privilege of being one of four sons of an amazing guy named Luis Palau, who's with the Lord now for the last 18 months. But he was an incredible dad, an incredible leader. And from the day after my twin brother and I graduated from Wheaton College back in 1985, I've been working with the Palau Association and now have the privilege of being the president and CEO. And that's enabled me to travel all around the world, I think 80-some different countries, to see the beauty of the body of Christ. What does it look like when churches work together? To meet amazing people and to just see the many, many, many different ways that the good news of Jesus can be shared. Because dad was an evangelist. The Billy Graham of Latin America is how he was known when I was a kid. But he really just had a heart to unify churches and to share the good news. And we maintain that same mission, proclaiming the good news, uniting the church and impacting cities worldwide. How we do it has changed a bit over the years as incredible open doors. But I just have the, I kind of pinch myself at the opportunities, even though that's a challenging season for the church in many ways, especially in the U.S., a lot of division, a lot of polarization, Many, many people drifting away from maybe a childhood faith, but there's lots of ways to share this good news of Jesus. And we get to be kind of in the middle of a lot of it. I love that. I just remember growing up hearing about your father's ministry. And little side note, my grandparents lived in Portland when they were alive. And I believe they were some of the first like contributors Mm -hmm. when your parents started raising support and Uh, my grandfather was a chaplain and just loved your family. And that's something I didn't even discover until I was in my Mm twenties. So tell me the calling that your dad discovered at an early age. I know you had just referred to him as like the Latin Billy Graham. What was it about Billy Graham that inspired him? Well, you know, dad, had this desire to share the good news. He, his family had come to the Lord in a suburb of Buenos Aires, and they just had, the whole family had a, a deep, deep passion to share the gospel. And dad did it initially in the small ways that he could. He bought a tent and they did a little kids outreach, like backyard Bible club kind of stuff. He did a little radio program during his lunch hour when he was working at the Bank of London in Buenos Aires. But really, as soon as he discovered um, on the radio and then some missionaries that he knew were telling him about Billy Graham, he just had this instinctive sense, that's what I'm going to do. And no, no other Latin American was doing that way back then 
in the 1950s, when Dad first came across Billy Graham, there was something about that style of why can't all the churches of different denominations work together? You know, we're, we're better together. Biblically, we know we are one in Christ. It's just going to make more of a difference. And so to that, it just seemed incredibly obvious and logical that this type of approach would work anywhere. So he'd, he'd never met, he hadn't met Billy, he didn't meet Billy Graham for quite a few years after that, but he had this conviction in his heart that that's what he was going to do, even when there was absolutely no earthly indication of how that would happen. Because my dad's dad, my grandpa, who was also named Luis Palau, died when dad was only 10 years old and dad became the sole financial support from the time he was 16 for his widowed mom and five younger sisters. So humanly speaking, dad came from a little tiny church of like 50 people, no connections, no open doors. So why he had the audacity to think I'm going to be preaching, not just in Latin America, but in stadiums and major cities in New York city, all around the world. If he had told people that he he was wise enough to kind of feel like, you know what, I think I'm just going to keep this to myself. But he had a conviction, that's what I'm going to be doing. And that I think that conviction from the Lord kept him going in some challenging times when it's like, how is this going to happen? And there's the time's not there to go through all the ways, but through a lot of kind of miraculous ways, Dad ended up in the U.S., in Portland, Oregon, of all places, because my mom's a native Oregonian. They met at Multnomah School of the Bible, that's why we've been based in Portland all these years. So you look back and you see God's hand in lots of seemingly incidental, unimportant things. Wow. Well, and I just love how the Lord gives us these visions or dreams when we are younger. And we probably think, oh, I'd love to do that someday. It's a heart desire. We, but we can weigh all that out going, you know, is that truly of the Lord? And the Lord in his gracious way, still has this, like, I'm going to plant this desire in you and just watch, mm. which is so neat to see the faithfulness of even your parents of let's walk this forward and see if the Lord truly establishes our steps. Yes. So even for listeners that are listening that might not be familiar with LPA or Luis Palau Association, I've read some of these numbers of these large scale events, 294,000 attending events in Honduras and Guatemala and yeah. Peru, and then 180, excuse me, 187,000 in Nicaragua to Hong Kong, even yeah. like your dad preaching to 127,000 people, <laughs> what I would do, even being in front of that many people. <laughs> For dad, it wasn't, it wasn't an ego thing. It wasn't, I got to become a big name person. He just had had his life so transformed by knowing Jesus Christ, the love, the joy, the peace, the comfort. He just had a very simple, not simple-minded, but a simple in the sense of unforced love for Jesus and, and, a, and a sense that why wouldn't I devote myself to equipping and inspiring as many other believers as possible to share their faith and to see the beauty of hundreds and in some cases, thousands of churches working together to draw large numbers of people to hear the good news and, and to celebrate our unity in Christ. And as this used to be called a crusade 20 years ago, we, we changed it more to a festival approach, like an outdoor music festival that would now include tons of community service 
It would include partnerships with mayors and cities and school districts and, and kind of mobilizing the church to be the body of Christ, to demonstrate the kingdom, to love and serve. But, but doing something big was always on dad's heart. He had this desire to do things that were big. And by God's grace, he had the chance to see some huge things happen. And we, we continue to do that to this day. I love that. I love that. Well, I really think that the Lord uses, in the world's terms, the most unlikely. Mm. We can talk about that as well, but it's God just picks these people that the world probably wouldn't ever pick. Like you said, he grew up in a small town and then is just kind of like, well, watch what I can do. So tell me, as a kid growing up around this and getting to travel internationally, was it always the thought in your mind that you would go into working with your dad and then eventually taking over and serving as CEO and president? It really wasn't. I mean, I know it would, it would seem like, well, it must have just been kind of the plan, but it honestly wasn't. I came to the Lord pretty young and did have a sense that I was going to be involved in ministry. When I was a Wheaton College student, I really had a heart, still do, but kind of had a heart for missions. And in particular, in those days, for the Muslim world, for kind of a, just a logical, like, well, that's a hard place. Fewer people choose to devote their lives to that. And so for all my four years at Wheaton College, I thought I was going to be a missionary to the Muslim world. So in other words, that would have been a pretty small, humanly speaking, small kind of ministry, a few people here and there. And once I graduated from Wheaton, my wife, Michelle, and I got married just three months after graduating from Wheaton. And I was only going to work at the Plow Association for one year to um, pay off some student loans, get settled in a married life, and then go off to Fuller School of World Missions wow. and prepare for this missionary journey. And in the first three, four months of working at the Plow Association, even though, of course, I'd grown up going to the big events and things, something just changed in my heart where I felt like, wow, this is incredible to see what it's like to have the churches of a city unite. Something about that grabbed my heart in a permanent way, I would say. I love seeing hundreds and, well, in some cases, thousands of believers from different ethnicities, different styles of church, different denominations, recognizing our unity in Christ and wanting to see their city impacted. So it wasn't part of the plan to do this. I just fell in love with the model of seeing a city impacted by the good news and over time realized that the gifts that God gave me kind of fit that kind of model. I love new things. I feel like I've, I, God's gifted me to kind of look at and see new, fresh opportunities. I mean, I know we'll, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, later on, but our context in Portland, Oregon, being an, an incredibly radically unchurched place, mm-hmm. a very politically progressive place, a hard place for the gospel, I look back and see that as a God thing. It forced us to really change or, or take a hard look at our model because most places in the U.S., at least in the West, are becoming more like Portland, harder, less churched, a hostile cultural context. So how does the body of Christ, how do churches of different denominations work together and begin to break through and help people understand a relationship with Christ, even in a hard place like Portland? Totally. Um, we see a lot of open doors, even in hard places like our home city of Portland. Yeah. 
Well, and even just jumping on that about Portland. So just to give a little context to listeners, how I'm connected to you guys. It's kind of a funny story. I had right after college, I had chosen to move to the Northwest because I knew one person (laughs) in Seattle and I chose Seattle over New York based off of knowing one person. And on my way up, I had talked to several people at church and different spots of, hey, have you ever checked out this organization? They're doing incredible things. And then, oh, by the way, they're in the process of filming a skate film. Right. That's how it was presented to me. And (laughs) so here I was, this 23-year-old, I think I emailed going, hey, do you have a job for me? I probably was a little more professional than that, but I just remember jumping right into helping with this film called Living Living It. Yes. And the wild thing is, and I don't know that you would have ever known this, but in college, I kind of teetered the line of like, what is all in mean? And Mm -hmm. I still went to chapel, but I still also kind of danced the edge of like, what does a cool Christian look like? And Am I allowed to sleep in on Sundays kind of thing? <laughs> I remember being around these athletes, not only at the Burnside Skate Park, but then also in the editing bay and getting to interact with Stephen Baldwin and some of the other skateboarders and BMXers. Right. They talked about Jesus in a way that I did not know Jesus. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. talked about him like he was there not only their best friend, but their counselor and their their love and their sole interest and their first priority. And they just talked about him with almost this, like what we know now is this heaven longing of that's my person. And that set me on a journey because I wanted to go back to Hollywood to make films and movies and see what I could do in Hollywood. And yet the Lord had a completely different plan and working with living it and on this skate film really propelled my future to want to go into ministry, want to see people impacted forever with the mm-hmm. message of the gospel and people's stories using those as testimonies to reach others in what God could do in their own life, deliver them from depression or anxiety or suicidal thoughts, a lot of what these athletes talked about. So the amazing aspect of getting to work with you, and I've heard that Living It became the best-selling action sport DVD slash video of all time with over 200,000 copies, which is unbelievable. It was a crazy season. No, it really was a crazy season. I mean, I kind of briefly mentioned, you know, we used to do these kind of crusades, like in a, in a stadium or an arena. And then 20 years ago in Portland, we took a, uh, the heart of everything was still the same, unifying the church and creating an environment that people could bring friends to. And so we thought a two-day outdoor music festival with corporate sponsors and an action sports area. We built a, pro, a skate park and brought in pro skaters that were believers and BMX guys. And so Portland became the place we tried this. And um, because Skate Church, the first skate ministry in the world, started in Portland, Oregon with this guy we knew, Paul, Paul Anderson, he said like, yeah, let's build a skate park. I can build it. We'll bring in some pro skaters I know. So that became a piece of our festivals. Then we're doing this festival in Syracuse, New York. And we kind of heard through the grapevine that, oh, you know, the, the Baldwin family, the mom, 
and sisters live in Syracuse. So we kind of checked that in the back of our mind. And then during the festival in Syracuse, this usher guy comes backstage and says, Stephen Baldwin's out here and wants to see you guys. So he, he came backstage and it's like, I'm a brand new believer, like a few months. Nobody knew that he was. And he said, like, I can't believe this is incredible. And he was particularly mm. taken by the pro sports, sort of the action sports athletes, because Steven's a pretty wild and crazy guy. And he just resonated with that part of it. And he said, like, when's your next one? Fort Lauderdale, you know, in a few months, come on down for that. So that he really was a person that said, you've got kind of lightning in a bottle here. Like, let me make a simple DVD with these athletes. We'll, we'll kind of bring them to Portland for a month. They will film them all over town and get their testimonies. And it's like, I guess, I mean, I don't have, we have no experience with this. So Stephen became a really good friend. His two daughters, Haley and Aliyah, Haley Baldwin now, you know, married to uh, Justin Bieber. So it's a crazy story of God using people that, that have a lot of cultural cachet. But um, yeah, that was a season, you know, living it. It's like a lot of things. You have this wave of action sports kind of being the, the way that we thought we could reach more people. We still always have at our festivals, the um, skate, BMX and freestyle motocross. But, you know, we don't make like all the DVDs anymore. But we're always looking for what's the next wave? How do we not slavishly copy culture or try to act like people that we're not, but find genuine believers that are authentically living out their faith, whether that's well-known musicians or athletes, et cetera, and leverage that to create a festival that people could bring their friends to. But basically it's all still about how do we communicate an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ and call people to follow him. Lots of different ways to do it. Yeah, that's so fun. Well, and who would have thought 15 years ago, well, longer than that, yeah, I mean, 17 years ago. Almost, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Little Miss Haley Baldwin. <laughs> Haley, right. you know, Haley Bieber. She was Haley 11 Bieber, yeah. years old when I, when I worked there. Right. <laughs> it was so wild. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that I love about what you guys do is that you don't just bring a big event festival into a city and then leave. Right. You know, right. incorporating these other, you have like year or two year long cultivating the grounds, working with partner churches. Can you share a little bit in terms of like, what are some really neat things that you've seen as a result of these outreaches? Yeah. It, I know for a lot of people, when they hear about something like a festival, you're going to think, yeah, it's like a concert and that's cool, but what does it really do? What kind of an impact is left when a big event like that is over? We really, Portland has been the place where we've experimented with a lot of things because it's such a radically unchurched place. It was a place where we went from crusades to more of a festival. It was also the place, after we did our first festival, we came back and said, how do we make it more of a holistic model? How do we make it where the churches are actively involved in loving and serving the community, serving our public schools, serving kids in foster care, serving the refugee community? The church, and of course, churches are always serving. Individual believers are always led by the Holy Spirit, demonstrating the love that they have for the community in many, many different ways. What a, a festival or what we'd call it in a city serve effort can do is kind of shine a light on the many ways that churches are already serving the community and kind of give the, the festival as a celebration of unity, a celebration of 
look what can happen when hundreds of churches and in some cases tens of thousands of followers of Jesus in a concerted way get engaged in schools and get engaged in foster care, etc. And then when the festival is over, this now becomes um, a catalyst. We see a festival now as a catalyst for a longer term movement of the churches. In some cases, now we go to festivals, particularly in places where there's already a long-term united movement of the churches. In other cases, the festival will be the catalyst to say, why wouldn't we stay working together long after this event is over? So our journey in Portland, we're now for 15 years coming out of the festival we had in 2008. There's been an ongoing united effort of more than 200 local churches, including most of the larger churches in Portland, of all denominations and ethnicities. We have 70% of the public schools that have a church partner now. The foster care system's been incredibly impacted by the churches collaborating. It's now called Every Child. And in fact, the way that you volunteer into the foster care system is to come through Every Child. It's now in all counties in the state of Oregon. Uh, there's a refugee care collective that's been formed. So Together PDX, PDX is our airport code in Portland. Together PDX, people could go to that website, togetherpdx.org, and you could see, or .com, maybe either. You could see efforts to unify churches or pastors in dozens of regional pastors' prayer groups, tons of prayer efforts, all these serving efforts I mentioned that relate to foster care and refugees and uh, partnering with schools, ongoing evangelism. So we're aware now of more than 200 cities around the U.S. and many hundreds more around the world that have what we'd call a city gospel movement, where the churches are saying, we desperately need each other. Yeah. We need to be together, not just around an event or one strategy, but to be together for loving the community, praying, and sharing the good news. And our citygospelmovements.org website has a mapping function where people can see, is there something like this already? I'm in Omaha. Yes, there is. Or in Phoenix. Yep. Or Seattle or the San Francisco Bay Area. We have a part of the role of the Palau Association is to help connect the leaders of these unified movements. So I think as, as the culture gets darker in a way, as it, as it gets harder to live maybe openly as a follower of Jesus without getting a lot of attack and pressure, yeah. it's a beautiful season for the church to unite, not around politics or some things that may divide us but around the person of Jesus and what does it mean to live out kingdom values. When we do that together, I think many, many people, even that are far from Christ, are more open. We've seen that in Portland, which is a very unchurched place. Yeah. Gosh. Well, and I even remember experiencing New York City in 2015, where a city that you would think there's no way this type of festival event could be pulled off and being in the middle of Times Square, watching Toby Mac or Mendisa right. lead worship wow. and going, we're in the middle of Times Square and thousands of people are walking by, <laughs> yes. paying attention yes. what is going on and then hearing your father preach and just being like, the good news of Jesus was just like proclaimed under all the billboards. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was around the time that you had released Unlikely. Right, um, right. And a book that Kevin wrote and the tagline, setting aside our differences to live out the gospel. You know, 2015, it was one thing to set aside our differences and live mm. out the gospel. Yeah. Fast forward to 2022, it is a whole different world. Yes. We're faced with blaring differences 
how would you take what you wrote then and apply it to today? You know, yeah, it's, it was a, that book unlikely is really just telling the story of our journey in Portland, Oregon, mm. a place that's been um, culturally fairly antagonistic to the gospel. But part of that would just be some of the stereotypes that evolve over the years of, well, these Christians, or particularly these evangelical Christians, are hate mongers. They're, they're basically anti-everything. I'm not sure what good they do. So the reality of the context of Portland, where we knew that we were known for what we're against more than what we're for, was what led us to go and see the mayor and good friend Sam Adams, who wrote the foreword to the book, now former mayor, but at the time he was the first openly gay mayor of a top 25 city. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but it was amazing to see friendships established and favor with our city leaders. As we said, as a group of churches, what would it look like to seek the shalom of Portland together? Jeremiah 29, 7 says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the, the people of the leadership of the uh, children of Israel taken into captivity in Babylon 700 years before Christ, and they were physically in exile. God's word to them isn't circle the wagons and just wait for deliverance, create your own subculture, nor is it fight the culture and win politically or otherwise. It's actively seek the shalom, the peace and prosperity of this city. So that's been our rallying cry for 15 years now. And that same verse has inspired many, many other city movements. And so the book just looks at what does it look like in a challenging context for the church to unite around these sort of kingdom values, to not pretend that we're in agreement with our city leaders or with mm-hmm. people that would not be Jesus followers. There, there's absolutely times when we need to maintain our biblical orthodoxy, the beautiful ancient orthodoxy that has maintained the Christian church for 2000 years. We can't deny that. But how do we then, because we know that there are places where our understanding of certain things stand against the culture, or at least the majority of people in the culture, how do we then so love and serve people that even those that may disagree with us on important cultural issues will still sense God's love for them? So the unlikely tells that story. And yeah, it's a 15-year-old story. The book is seven years old now, but it, it still resonates with me because city after city are recognizing as the polarization gets worse and worse and worse, that we desperately need each other within the body of Christ. And we need to focus on the things that unite us. We need to focus even with our city leaders or with our culture at large, we still have common ground areas where we care about the education of our kids. We care about people being loved and served that are coming in as refugees. We care about caring for kids in foster care. And those sorts of things can open doors for healthy gospel conversations. So I've never been more encouraged despite the challenges, despite the fact that post-COVID most church attendance is down 20, 30 percent. There's a lot of reason to maybe be concerned. I really do believe that it's a great chance for followers of Jesus to um, love and serve people, be bold in sharing the good news, at the same time to listen well and not necessarily lead with um, antagonistic and particularly politicized kinds of statements and hopes and expectations. Our hope is not in any particular political party or who's going to win this next election. I'm not saying those things don't matter. Don't get me wrong. We we should vote our conscience. We should get involved in those things. 
But uh, political movements rise and fall, and the Church of Jesus Christ is always going to be there in good times and bad, living out the way of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and even just thinking about whether it's our neighbors or our small family units and having conversations, like things that could divide us. But at the end of the day, when a tragedy happens or when somebody's going through something, to watch love transform a divided neighbor or a family that doesn't see eye to eye, like you show up for each other. And that's something that the gospel of Jesus has hopefully transformed our hearts enough that we do show up for people. We look different. We, we act different where people are like, how I don't understand this kind of love because they're so used to a conditional acceptance. So I just love, I love all the things that Palau is doing. I know we were talking even before we started recording about this new initiative to use strategic media. Right. Digital media in particular. Yeah. 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 So, so tell us a little bit more. I noticed on the timeline, it says you guys have reached over 22 million since 2016, which is just incredible. So I'd love to hear what you guys are doing now with. Well, what happened was uh, our board had challenges for a while. You know, one of our board members, I remember held up her phone and said like, you know, my kids, live on their devices and it's great that we're doing and we should continue to do the festivals that unite the body of christ and the work that we do in encouraging others with the gift of evangelism and helping have these sustainable city movements but what are we going to do to reach people all around the world that are spending most much of their life on social media and we didn't have a great answer to that but right before covid one of our major donors who was a a tech guy he put millions of dollars into developing something called hope with god and basically gave it to us. It's a digital platform. It's basically simply a daily Facebook, TikTok, Instagram ads that go out in English and Spanish all around the world. Over a million people see the ads every single day. 48,000 people last week indicated a commitment to Christ from more than 200 countries last week. And that happens week after week after week. And then those that come into their lives to Christ, we put them into those that are willing, which is over a third of them are wanting to get into some digital discipleship. So they join a Facebook group called Hope with God, which is almost 20 million people now. They, um, hundreds of thousands on a regular basis are giving us their email addresses. And so they get into a 50-day spiritual journey. We get them into you into uh, version reading plans. And just now we're at a point, at least in the U.S., where we're able to connect them, those that are willing, which again, it's a funnel. So it gets smaller yeah. and you get down to those that would actually be willing to talk to someone in person or get connected to a church. But we just now have the opportunity through a partner called Glue to connect people to thousands of churches that are raising their hand and saying, we want to get more involved in the digital evangelism and discipleship space. We want to be available for people that might emerge in our community through these ad campaigns so, so that's, that's it. It's a new world for us, but we're seeing, again, every single week between 35 and close to 50,000 people every single week that have seen the ads, go to the website and hear the gospel, and then indicate a commitment to Christ, and then get involved in discipleship. And we're doing this, too. I'll just mention one, one more thing. We are part of an amazing campaign that people are going to start seeing on 
whether it's things like the Tonight Show and Survivor and especially Major League Sports, if you're watching NFL football games this fall, and including we got two spots in the Super Bowl, there's a campaign called He Gets Us, which some marketplace leaders from around the country are putting in huge amounts of money to say, how do we help very skeptical people just begin to think a little differently about Jesus? So the ads are fairly edgy and different. People can go to hegetsus.com and kind of see some of the ads, but already over 300 million people have watched the ads on YouTube. But the ads are, again, are on NFL games on CBS and Fox. We've got two ads in the second half of the Super Bowl. And we're going to be using this, kind of leveraging this uh, He Gets Us campaign to try to recruit thousands of churches to be willing to put up their hand and say, I'd like to see if there are digital explorers, we call them, that would emerge in from Paducah, Kentucky, to New York City, to Portland, Oregon, to anywhere in the country. You can go to He Gets Us. Or if you're a church leader, or even just an individual, he gets us partners.com. It's kind of the, the slightly more hidden website. The, the he gets us one is really outward facing. Like we want skeptics that see the ads that are like, what is this? Yeah. But the he gets us partners is where, like, you know, I'd like to find out more. How could I get involved in helping maybe encourage or disciple people that are exploring faith? I'm on the board of Alpha USA, and we're going to be creating some new alpha kind of digital or online kind of maybe short and sweet online communities of people that would emerge from this He Gets His campaign to say, if I could do it in a safe way, I wouldn't mind being part of a, maybe it's just three weeks for half an hour and just ask questions and express my doubts and concerns. So we're really trying some new things to try to reach people. So that's something else we're excited about. The He Gets His campaign isn't a product of the Palau Association. We're just simply kind of strategically involved to help people become mm-hmm. aware of it, and to help equip churches to respond to people that are going to emerge as a result of it. Gosh, that's so amazing. Well, I will, for listeners that are tuning in, I'll tag everything in the show notes so they can find out more okay. and go to those specific websites. I'd love to pivot just a little bit. And I also want to be cautious of your time. I'm thinking about people that might be listening and, and they think, gosh, that's all amazing. But they wonder if they could ever be part of something like this, or they might sense God's call on their life. They just, they don't know what to do. Do you have any words of wisdom that you would encourage somebody who's like, how do I figure out God's call on my life? And what if I am in the places between? Mm, yes. I would say, as simple and obvious as it is, to remember that God has a unique purpose for you that may not look like what anybody else is doing. And that um, things that seem small or insignificant can be absolutely radically life-changing for an individual that God puts into your pathway. Sometimes people have this sense, like, unless I'm doing something really big, it doesn't matter. For an individual that you happen to be a shoulder to cry on, or someone that's explaining the good news of Jesus, or just simply kind of that cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, any way that God uses you to meet someone else's needs is a powerful part of demonstrating what it means to follow Jesus. So don't despise maybe small things where you feel like, it doesn't feel like I'm making a difference. Following Jesus in the small, insignificant ways that nobody sees is what builds the character 
that people that are far from Christ see and say there is something different about this person. So we can sometimes be taken up in the world that we live in, in unless my social media followers aren't climbing through the roof, nobody sees what I do, I don't matter, I'm discouraged. God sees you, God knows you. The people that God uses the most at times are the people that are just simply humble and willing to be used. So don't despise seemingly small things. Be grateful for every little opportunity that you have to be an encouragement to someone at your local church with a friend, with a coworker, with somebody that you're sitting next to on a plane or at Starbucks. Every little thing that you do with a good-hearted intention to bless somebody is a part of the kingdom, and we celebrate that. So, um, I mean, as simple as that is, God is using you. If you want to be used and you're praying for opportunities, mm-hmm. every single day is an opportunity to demonstrate your love for Jesus and his love for other people. Yeah, amen. Absolutely. That was such a good word. As we start to wrap up, I just, first and foremost, and hopefully I expressed it at the beginning, I just want to thank you for being committed to that long game of faith. And I know I get this wonderful opportunity on the outside to see all these incredible things that you guys are doing through your organization and the way that you're leading others to Jesus and building on the legacy that your dad started. My younger brother, Andrew, who has an amazing story of coming to the Lord at 27 years old, he and his wife, Wendy, they met in Jamaica where her dad was the chairman of the festival. And both of them have amazing evangelistic gifts. And we have just as many festivals as we've ever had with the two of them as a couple sharing the good news. Well, yeah. And that's for people wanting to know more, to go to the website and learn all about Luis Palau. And I just know that your dad is watching from heaven, like cheering you guys on. I just believe that with Mm -hmm. every fiber of my being, I just think he's like, cheering you on, going way to win more people for Mm -hmm. Jesus and and confront that darkness and just want to honor you and thank you and your brother and really your families that are all rallying together to be like, let's keep doing this because it's needed and it's really important. So I just, I feel so blessed to have even been a part years and years ago and continually through this global network of evangelists that you know, has expanded to hundreds. It's so neat to see. So as this is a podcast about transitions and the places between as we can all relate going from season to season, I'd just love to hear from you, Kevin, what place you are between Mm -hmm. and then how can we be praying for you guys? Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, we're still in this transition of losing a dad, the founder of the organization, It's still called the Luis Palau Association. So there's this transition, even though dad had cancer for three years. So we kind of had a, and thank the Lord, he did really well for most of those three years. And we had a longer than we thought with him. But there's still this in-between of losing an iconic figure, irreplaceable in a way, but leaning forward into like what is next for us? How do we use the history and the credibility? So certainly I'm always looking for what, are the next opportunities. For us, it seems like it's, we continue the festivals, we continue partnering with other evangelists and encouraging these city movements, but certainly the digital realm is one for us. So I would appreciate people's prayers that we would be faithful, that we wouldn't get distracted 
or could get into any cul-de-sacs of time and energy that aren't going to be productive. Mm -hmm. So that God would lead us there. And then um, we're kind of in between. We have adult kids. My wife, Michelle, and I have three wonderful adult kids. Our middle son, Daniel, and his wife, Lainey, have been married five years. It's the first married couple of that generation. And we're expecting Mm -hmm. our first grandchild in February. So that's a fun in-between of going from being a parent to being a grandparent. We're really excited about that transition that's coming up. I love that. Well, congratulations. How exciting. I've heard many parents say that once they get to being a grandparent, that parenting is worth it so they could be a grandparent. (laughs) So I just hope it's full of delightful moments and just want to honor you and thank you for spending some time with us. And we'll for sure be praying for the ministry as you advance forward and excited to see all those things continue to grow and more lives impacted. So just want to say thanks again. And listeners, we'll catch you again next week. Thanks for joining us on The Places Between. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Wendy. I'm over here cheering you on, friend. You just finished another episode of the Places Between podcast. If you want to access more, be sure to subscribe or visit theplacesbetween.com to learn more about our guests, episode sponsors, upcoming retreats, and more. Like Stay in the Story, a 25-day devotional all about staying in your story while you wait on your dreams, on God, and on life to come to fruition. And lastly, if you're looking for an online community of people who also want to transition well, then come say hi over on Instagram at The Places Between. As always, thanks for taking time to dive into The Places Between. Until next time, keep enjoying that journey.